Speaking of Need for Speed, my like 4K <laughs> Blu-ray at Top Gun got here today. Yo. It's going to be a fucking party, my dudes. <sighs> the, the, I, the, I hear the new one doesn't have any of the zest and magic of the original. You mean all um, the homosexuality? Yes, exactly. Of course. Yeah. The, ga- the ga- gay shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because I've, I've heard it's good, but I'm like, yeah, but... Yeah. Is there like that, you know? Yeah. Is there like shirtless Val Kilmer and like Tom Cruise like making angry eyes at each other in like a sweaty locker room? Playing volleyball? I mean, come on. Hanging with the boys. Like, come on. All the magic. There's a reason I'm gay. It's because my dad showed me that movie in middle school. (laughs) That's my root if we're doing better in cheerleader language. I'm Justin. I'm a Skullcom librarian. My pronouns are he and him. I'm Sadie. I work IT at a public library. My pronouns are they, them. I'm Jay. I'm a music library director, and my pronouns are he, him. God, that feels fucking great to say. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Kyle. I am a historian and writer, and my pronouns are he and him. Return guest. Hanging with the yeah. boys today. We, love right. we are guests. hanging with the boys. <laughs> so, uh, you have been on before, and we talked about video games. And this is kind of like a video game in that it's a movie. Mm-hmm. And it's entirely about libraries. Absolutely. As all movies are. <laughs> all movies yes. are about libraries. Yeah. A, a Mal, all movies are libraries. Um. Yeah. Uh, all movies are... Uh, repositories of contingent epistemology. And if that's mm-hmm. not a library, then I don't, I guess, I guess, I guess I'm confused then. Cause that sounds like a library. I mean, I don't know what video games are still. You don't know what libraries are. It, it balances uh, out. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Kyle, why don't you do your plugs up front? Cause you've got some more projects on board since the last time we had you. That's true. We've had new things. You can f- follow me on Twitter at Labor Kyle, of course, and you can listen to my podcast, which is called All Gamers Are Bastards, and it's uh, about video games, um, and I host it with my friend Kay. And then also, you can mostly find what I've been doing on the Zero Books YouTube channel on a show called Profane Illuminations that I host with my good friend, the Licker Guy. It's a Benjaminian, Blockian, weirdo, Marxist utopian podcast slash show about the, the the unveiling of our contemporary moment using uh, the profane illumination, which are thought images and sketches and sort of this, you know, a, 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 a neo-modernist pan, sort of uh, constellation of thought image, uh, which is a really pretentious way of saying it's kind of, we kind of do our, th- do our own thing, <laughs> follow, follow our bliss on a topic or whatever. I'm very, actually very proud of it. We have a new episode that'll be coming out in the next couple weeks on revolution as an idea, which will have my most insurrectionist content so far. And John and I have made an entire video about rioting. And this is still way more. <laughs> uh, um, it's about pride, 
which that so that 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 conversation was really good. And uh, besides that, I'm work now. I'm writing books apparently because people asked me to, and I said yes. So those will come out next year probably. But. Are they the kind of books where it's academic books and you don't actually get paid to write them? No, uh, they're, they're like real one books. Of, <laughs> one of them is for one of them is a is a work on. Is, I'm I'm writing it. I'm under contract with Repeater Books right now to write. Oh hell a, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm very, I'm very grateful and glad to be over there with all of them working, getting to know with them working through with working with the new zero or the revamped zero has been really rewarding. That book is going to be a longer treatment all about sort of the uh, philosophy of history and sort of how, how we narrativize history using things like labor, but also personal essays in this, in the same sense of our show, it's going to be pastiche esque in its the way that it sort of sketches history as an idea. And then I'm also working on a smaller work for Zero that will be a part of a series on Utopia that my editor at Repeater, my editor Carl at Repeater is actually going to be editing for them. And that book is going to be about the utopian language of revivalism and is to be titled Revival, the Return of Spirit, which I'm still very, yeah, that's a good title. I like, I like that title. So yeah, those will be Hell yeah. good. I think I will be buying both of them. They sound great. Well, thank you. <laughs> and you did just finish coming off the high of breaking the internet with the boss baby sort of, <laughs> uh, definitive work. Oh, what's uh, that really... fucking Wagner <laughs> term? The Gazumsvek? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, you, if you if you if you ever don't get enough of the sound of my own voice, the Horror Vanguard is a great place to find hour long conversations about the Boss Baby, um, <laughs> in which I tried to I tried to do as much as I can to purge the film uh, totally from my body. I've been talking about it for over a year and a half since the first time I saw it. Uh, laid eyes on it, really. Let's face it, and uh, well. I mean, the conference, the the Boss Baby conference is going for round two next year. I just and I missed, I missed the, I missed the, uh, I missed the training the first time around. So I'll probably have to figure that. You know, re- revisit this very important text of our contemporary moment. Yeah, there two hours and fifteen, good two hours and fifteen minutes on that topic <laughs> over at Horror Vanguard. I, I listened to it while I was experiencing Boston commuter traffic for the very first time, and it was hey. the, like a good like wine pairing. I think oh, that's good. I'm glad I could be of service there. <laughs> I didn't look at how long it was, and I was like, "Man, they must be wrapping up soon." And then I just like <laughs> I was like doing work like work around the house or something, and I was like, "Man, when, when did I start listening to this?" <laughs> John and Ash just kind of let me do things, and I'm gr- I'm so grateful for it because I was a fan of Horror Vanguard before I ever went on it. Uh, I was a listener, and now I talk to those guys every day. I just I I did propose that episode. I messaged Ash and John, and I said there probably should be a. I had just what had I done? I watched the sequel or something, and I messaged them and I said, "Look, there should probably be a horror vanguard episode on this." And they're like, "Okay, let's get it on the books." And well, what can I what can I say? They get me. I guess they get me. I'm sure there's something juicy juicy in the Boss Baby series about like information and, and information transmission and, and knowledge and then something that we could do. Yeah. I'm not school. watching the boss baby in the sequel. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they go to a whole private school and the sequel 
oh. to where yeah and there <laughs> it's all about like academic pressure oh, but shit. like it had like there's there's some yeah there's there's so much to work with it's yeah i what can i say Just never deleting that one you i was looking at the fuko mode and i was like oh no i deleted that one <laughs> i added like 10 new drops though I have I have I have never gotten so many messages at one time as when that clip started moving around Twitter. It was just like about <laughs> once, once an hour. It just came to the Agab Twitter account to my personal account. It's like I'm glad, you know, that's good. That's fine. That's good. I'm I'm glad to be you known for something. Yeah, you got to be known for something, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we we have a chance to go for a second part because I was looking for. We're going to talk about the man from Earth, the Jerome Bixby written sci-fi movie, which was produced by his son um, after Jerome Bixby's death. No one has written about this movie, which I find very strange. No one's done like a like a video essay. No one's written any academic papers about it. So, I mean, this will be the definitive sort of a critical moment for the film except for like oh what what was the ending about i don't get it like those kinds of youtube videos that are just the worst ding (laughs) cinema skins this is our boss baby moment yeah i think so (laughs) our boss baby era yeah (laughs) so this movie's like kind of good yeah it's it's just it's actually it's actually good which is the difference so i'd seen this movie in college just because it has this like, you know, it has this qual it has this sort of like almost it's not pre-viral. There were things that were going viral on the internet when this movie came out, but it it feels like an a viral early a, a medium early viral memory for me, which is just something that got passed around by people who thought it might be interesting and who were into science fiction and stuff. That's how it ended up in my, you know, that's how I ended up torrenting it or whatever. And uh yeah, it's actually Kind of good. And it's better than I remembered it, actually. And I liked it very much the first time that I saw it. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the virality was like essential to the story of this movie, which was, you know, it was it was filmed in two days. It had sort of a limited release. And then it went really big on torrent sites. And then I think got picked up by early Netflix. And I think that was where I first saw it. it was like right when it got on Netflix. Yeah, this this film got like a second wind from it's one of those torrent success stories where the producer was like, hey, thanks for sharing the movie. Otherwise, people would never have seen it. And it's my father's last work and I wanted to do it right. And that's why it's all filmed in a, it's all filmed in one house over the film over the, the course of a, an afternoon, basically. And the original production, from what I remember, I couldn't I didn't find anything definitive on this, but. Other movie studios wanted to include flashbacks and things like that. And he's like, no, the whole point is you've got people trying to break a story sitting in a room. And so it's a very philosophical movie. It talks a lot about information, history, knowledge, the self. Uh, I think this would be like a perfect movie for like introductory philosophy courses if you wanted to give something fun. Because there's historiography a lot for under historiography for undergrads, like I think I think this could I think it could spawn an entire a, a series of class worth of conversations, which I mean we will we'll get into. But I I think it's super useful for instruction. It's very instructive in its 
it's good. It's well, it's really, really for me, what, what works about the movie is that it's well-written. It has a lot of characters that are not just like that in embodied in their characterization is a, a series of goals that the writer wanted to accomplish. They come out very genuine. They change their mind throughout things. And then the performances, just so, you know, if we're talking about, you know, if this is, you know, if you're just talking about just sort of a base reading of the enjoyment of the film, the performances I thought were so good and sold just about everything that the film was trying to at the very least, even at its weakest point, even at its weakest points as a text, I thought the performances were like constantly dragging me back into it, which is what I liked. Yeah. Cause the performances to me, they're not Academy award performances, but that's not the vibe of this movie. And I don't think I would want it to be that like the way that the performances are and the way that everything is, is like perfectly suited to what the film is trying to do, if that makes TV sense. Cast. TV cast, yes. TV writer. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you could run this as a play, like at a local production. Mm-hmm. It's very like Twilight Zone episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't like, wasn't, because I don't know things, Jerome Bigsby's Star Trek? Mm-hmm. Question mark? There's yeah. a lot of Star Trek connections. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was looking at the Wikipedia article and clicked on some of the actors and a bunch of the actors were in Star Trek episodes. So I I really liked the character's like performance and, and the fact that it, it really did feel like you were sitting in a room of people who knew each other. So like, yeah, like I agree with Jay, there's not like nothing groundbreaking happening there, but it did feel very like embodied. It felt very much like I was peering over the shoulder, at, you know, in a room full of strangers. So like a bottle episode. They do a lot of interesting split shots. Yeah. Yes. Is it a split mm-hmm. diopter? I think is yeah. what that technique is so, called. Yeah. So he stands off to the side and like tries not to react. Right. And then you see also the room is in focus where everyone else is talking about him while he's standing right there. It's a very Brian De Palma technique when he's not doing True. split screens. He does his split diopters, you know. I don't know shit about film, so now I have a new word. <laughs> yeah, split diopter. It's very fun. I only am thinking about it because someone brought up like famous split diopter scenes and in films, and that's the only reason I noticed it and thought about it when I was watching the other night. But I mean, it's really cool. And uh, so the whole point of the movie is he, there is a history professor named John Oldman who is suddenly resigning from his job, his tenured job, and relatable. Uh, <laughs> and leaving and not telling anyone where he's going. And his friends are like, why did you not show up to the surprise party that the, the going, going away party. So like we brought it to you. And then he's like, I, I just, you know, I gotta, I gotta leave. And then they, he eventually tells them the story of actually the reason he leaves is people notice he doesn't age. And every 10 years he, he moves on and he's 14,000 years old and has survived since the paleolithic era somewhere in France we're led to believe. So that's the premise. And the whole thing is you've got two anthropologists. He's a historian, an art historian and Christian fundamentalist, a biologist, a student who gets all the best lines and (laughs) his girlfriend, who is the worst written character, but she's a, I think she's a music historian. And there's a psychologist. Oh, right. And a psychologist, an older psychologist. He jumps in the movie and then leaves. Or actually, he's a psychiatrist, I think. He's a medical doctor. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's a brain person. From office. And the movie From office space. 
Oh yeah, yeah and two mo- two moving guys too. They were just there. <laughs> yeah, I like them. Yeah. Hard workers. Yeah, I always imagine like what they were thinking because they're catching like snippets of the conversation after he's revealed that he's like fourteen thousand years old, and they're just like, all right. Whatever. And they're like picking up the furniture that people are sitting on. They're like, I, I got to move this. And everybody's just still having the conversation. Like, yeah, I just, that would be a fucking wild thing to go through. So, yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot in this movie about how do we know what we know? And Jay brought up a lot of information that I, is it isn't really in my wheelhouse, which is Buddhist epistemology. It's like this movie is very concerned with Buddhism and history and epistemology. So sort of the first things are just like psychological and scientific approaches to understanding what keeps him alive. Why is he like this? Why won't you go to my lab? And he goes, I don't want to prove it. I don't need that because this is about myself. This is not like, there's not an objective need for me to verify it. (laughs) Well, he, I guess I was thinking it was more in a way of like, He's experiencing it and he's telling people about it, but he's he's both the lab and the psychiatrist are filmed as like carceral threats. Yeah. So he's he's wary of dealing with it, either of them. Yeah. This is the second time I get to go Buddhist on Maine about a movie for a podcast. It's very exciting. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, the the part people most tend to talk about, but it's actually kind of the weakest part of the film is where you find out that after Jesus he learns... Yeah, after he learns from the Buddha, he moves back to the Near East and tries to teach Buddhism, which actually could have happened. There probably were, could possibly have been Buddhist missionaries in the Near East at that time. There's a group of people we know about. Their religion is kind of explained, but we don't, we can't be sure they're Buddhists, but it's possible. So, yeah, because Buddhism, the Shakyamuni Buddha Siddhartha, when he was teaching Buddhist doctrine, he made it literally just the Four Noble Truths simple enough because it was meant to be syncretic. It was meant to be able to travel and be kind of implanted into any culture it was brought into. So as long as there's like that one thing, then you can do whatever the hell else you want. And it's basically Buddhism. That's why it looks so different depending on where you are. Like this part of the movie, like, yeah, yeah I was like, ugh, really? Um, but um, it gave my favorite line, which was Buddhism with a Hebrew accent. Buddhism with a Hebrew accent. I was like laughing my ass off when I got to that part. I was like, hell yeah. Because there's actually a lot of um, Jewish people who convert to Buddhism to the point where there is like an actual word for for like jewish converts to buddhism yeah so it's like a very common thing actually it has this sort of like there there is a very like the the sort of historiography if you will it's like a popular historiography that you can tell that the writer is pulling from when it comes to like well you know jesus was just hercules and yeah (laughs) it's very like it's very like of its time, funny enough, you can feel the sort of like content, more contemporary edits that went into the text that, that I like in this, like, and I was very familiar with all of those discourses because that was around the time where I was definitively like stepping out of Christianity, having not really been what you could, what, what any mainline Christian would call a devout Christian for a very, very long time, rather than the, just this like kind of weird Marxist itinerant preacher that I am nowadays. Uh, but at like, as I was working through undergrad and stuff like that, you learn that these historiographies, 
the historiographies of the lack of a historical Jesus in particular, but also the the ones that kind of do a, a very easy one for one. Well, actually, it was Eastern Eastern influence or, you know. Uh, uh, there, there, there's, a, there's like a disc. It's uncovering a discursive secret about the origins of Christianity. When like, no, it's actually the, it's actually the historiography is like it's actually the more likely thing. It's a something of a creolization between Second Temple Judaism and Greco-Roman influences. The people who wrote, like Paul, Paul was influenced by his Greek and arguably, in my opinion, Greco-Roman education. It's, it's not proof of a universalizing principle and knowledge that people are able to come to the con- similar conclusions from different places and different experiences, but it does demonstrate that there are certain limitations in the coherency of our narratives and that if we sort of take it at face value, right, that like, okay, this is a, this is a sort of like new atheist Bill Maher discourse kind of that's like, worked its way in to sort of disrupt the persistence of a particular discourse. When you take it at that face value, it actually, I think, I think it, it's not great for the film. It kind of makes it get rocky a bit, but it allows it to become relevant again, I think as a, 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 for what the film is trying to say, you know, Sadie, I think they had a point. Just, just to be explicit, cause I'm not sure if anybody's actually said it. He is Jesus. Yeah, yeah. The Cro-Magnon man is is Jesus. He like that's, hung that's out the... with Buddha in India, even though he's from France. He's gone back and forth a bit, and then he goes and whoopsie, he was going to teach some some Buddhism. And so he accidentally becomes. He's the basis for historical Jesus. Like that that feel when you accidentally become Jesus. Yeah, like <laughs> it, that. Word. That was one of the major reveals of the movie. <laughs> Which, like, that was my least favorite part. But the way that they did the progression of the fundamentalist and her reactions yes. to it, especially mm-hmm. when he goes J.K. like at a bit, yeah. and like it looks like, yeah, like. Um, because I really, her character was getting on my nerves until that, where you can just see her starting to like have this crisis, and then it's even more of a crisis when he says he's kidding. And I thought that was skeptical really relief. Fascinating. Yeah, there's no vacuum in your experience of this information because, like, there we don't have an idea of what past in itself is. That does that's not a thing, an object that exists, right? And so we have to attempt to narrativize and cohere. It's this very sort of like Hayden White point, this very sort of meta meta history, postmodern his, historiographic kind of point. But I think what lies within it is the is the sort of the genealogical critique of history as a series of improbable possibilities that happen to cohere into particular via via their contingencies adhere into particularity. Because the point of history isn't necessarily to discover truth, but it's about emergent knowledge. And that all histories are in some way, shape, or form the history of our present because they exist are bound wholly to the present. It's a whole paradoxical mode of thought, and it's why history is so interesting, because on the one hand, it is the sort of like the the rendered object of humanity. But by the same token, it seeks to create a very easily disruptable primordialism, primordial thinking, and a, a thinking in originality, which in and of itself doesn't stand up to the scrutiny of history, the rendered object of its own creation. It's interesting. And I think, like, I like how the film, like, explicitly plays with that idea. And, like, you know, the I think like, the obvious one is when he talks about with, I believe, with the student, 
but it may have been another character about like describe your home when you were like seven, like exactly where you lived, but also like, did your mom take you to market with her? Okay. What direction was it? And all that. Okay. You can't remember all the exact, exact details. That place doesn't exist anymore. Then you can't go home because that home doesn't exist anymore because it's not something you can remember in the present. And so that's been lost. Like the sort of like, just because it's something that theoretically existed in the past because you can't perfectly recall it now it's never something you can return back to it is this like fundamental like saying no to nostalgia kind of it's like not ever something you can return back to the hegemonic nostalgia yeah yeah and then like the the thing with the pin where they were like well surely you kept something from when you were a caveman person and he's like would you fucking keep this pin for like thousands of years Mm -hmm. no because it's just like a tool and you don't like the importance of it that it will have in a bajillion years when someone finds it because it's left over from the past is not the importance it has now like where like meaning is very much time based kind of like it doesn't have meaning at a certain point but then it will in another point so the thing Uh, Kyle was saying about how we construct history. The film is very explicit about the distinctions between like personal knowledge and historical knowledge. So he's always saying, I can't tell you about my past because one, I had to learn about my past from modern sources, modern reconstructions of the past. I just wandered around an endless flat space, one person at a time. I, I can't have knowledgeable recall if I don't have knowledge. And that's you know, until other people did research about this, the past, I couldn't describe these things. You know, when science described the Cro-Magnon, I had a name for myself, but like I didn't give myself that name. So that was the point he was making with the, the student, which was your individual knowledge doesn't really matter because you need to construct history from a past that's rapidly decaying and it's gone now. So the only thing you can do is your best guess and anyone can do it. And that's why they can never break his story on historical terms. I can't even make, I don't know. I can't know if I made you believe me. I can't know if in a month even says was the line. Uh, I know I have it. Even if it, even if I could make you believe me in a month, you wouldn't this sort of like guaranteed negation is this very sort of like Nietzschean Foucaultian sort of point that we've been kind of, you know, working with here. And I brought a passage from an essay yeah, on, on Nietzsche genealogy and history by Foucault, where he talks about, he's talking about Nietzsche's different, Nietzsche has three different words that he uses for the idea of heritage, but that there's a, that, that there, are, there are sort of like asso- associative metaphysics, if you will. I'm probably using the wrong terminology. I'm not a Nietzsche expert, but... And, and he, he says, Foucault starts here, he says, we should not be deceived into thinking that this heritage is an acquisition, a possession that grows and solidifies. Rather, it is an unstable assemblage of faults, fissures, and heterogeneous layers that threaten the fragile interior from within or from underneath. And he's quoting from Nietzsche here, injustice or instability in the minds of certain men. Their disorder and lack of decorum are the final consequences of their ancestors' numberless logical inaccuracy, hasty conclusions, and superficiality, which is, that's actually Foucault at some of his most biting, funny enough. He uses very, like, he, he's very direct and very intense in, like, the criti- in his critique, but that language right there 
is sort of the it's the legacy of the Nietzschean point, which is that like primordialism is this creation of implotment that goes in the Foucaultian sense goes all the way to the body and it, it, it creates these in narrative, it creates and narrativizes and implots via the systems of discipline and systems of control and institutionalization, which I think is what's so interesting about this film, how the writer made sure to mention there, there was like threats of the sort of incarceration discourses of like, well, that's, a, that's a quick way to an asylum is basically what they say at one point in the film, which is, I think it's an, it's important to sort of like, if you're going to disrupt the origins of quote unquote originality in like historical life, in this case, the natural birth and death cycle of people, well, then the critique needs to sort of boil over to the like tropic gestures of institutions that lock people up and they never see the outside of the world again. And it's all because of this supposed, the, in, the historiographic implotment of a, a, tele, a teleology, you know, it, restricts our imagination by not letting experience have its be balanced out by its own negativity and its inability to capture just as y'all were saying being present at that moment in time didn't mean that he understood the entirety of that time he was still one person you know yeah and like i found especially because it explicitly names buddhism like in in the the film it's not just me going like oh the beginning of this movie is in bhutan and there's some meditating posture so buddhist philosophy time now um, like i did with the empty man this this film explicitly names it and so when i was watching it the way that like a lot of the things that it says about how we know things and why that matters are very similar to very early Buddhist epistemologies, um, like like Justin mentioned, in that like you know so like Shakyamuni Buddha, you know he taught his stuff in India, yada yada yada, four noble truths, don't be a dick, you know whatever, and then like the Arhats and some other people who like heard his teachings, then went off and like did their own teachings, and early Buddhist practice is largely epistemological. It's like trying to figure out what makes something. It's actually getting into atomic theory. If you read into it, it's really cool. Yeah. Like in monasteries in Tibet, like one of the main things you do as you're learning the Dharma is you do logic debates with each other. And it has like cool like hand gestures and stuff. I, I took a Buddhist philosophy course in college and we actually got to learn how to do the monastic debate. And that was that like, rules. yeah, no, it, it fucking ruled. And so early Buddhist like teachings and practice was like largely like not faith based. It was like you logic that shit out and like even like how do you know something? And I still have my Buddhist philosophy textbooks. And one thing that says is that like for the Buddha, the route to liberating knowledge is a path that invites empirical investigation and leads to a personal realization of the truth of the Dhamma. So Dhamma is Sanskrit, Dharma is, or no, Dhamma is Pali and Dharma is Sanskrit because um, actually the original texts were in Pali before Sanskrit. For liberation, the crucial things to attain knowledge of based on direct, quote, knowing and seeing are such matters as how things arise from conditions, how conditioned things are impermanent, pain-inducing, and not self, and the four 
noble truths. And so knowledge is based on four factors. First, the sense perception, that's one word, in a very like Salman Rushdie kind of way, on the basis of a mind purified of distorting elements. So that's why you have to meditate. It's not just your senses, but like, oh, you got to key in. So like you don't have the distorting elements of like greed or hatred or delusion. Second, there's extrasensory perception. Third, there are inferences drawn from the experiences of these perceptions, but remaining close to them so as to not use them as a springboard for speculations that go beyond them. And then finally, knowledge must be characterized by coherence and consistency. So it's all like logic-based and very like, if this, then that, therefore. Like literally in the Dharma, it's like, if you can't logic through something, then you throw it out. Because it's not important to your enlightenment. Like the Dalai Lama is not the Pope of Buddhism, but he has said that like if science can prove that rebirth isn't real, then fucking throw it out. It's not useful to us anymore because then it's not true. And so like often people ask, like, oh, if there's rebirth in Buddhism, like do people remember their past lives? No, because that's not important. Because that's a thing in the past. You can't directly know it. And trying to figure out doesn't actually help you towards liberation. It's like the present moment is what matters in in buddhism and how you know things and also if once you start getting more into like indo-tibetan like more um esoteric and tantric buddhist epistemologies there's this sort of like a way more focus on visualization of of deity and like a visual and mental transformation and the question often arises there of okay is this real are we believing all of this stuff or is this more like pedagogical mental exercises? Like, is it helping me to be a compassionate person to imagine that I become Vajrasattva who embodies this, or am I actually becoming this on some sense realm that I can't imagine because I'm in samsara. Right. And from my own teachers and just from my own, you know, philosophy knowledge, the answer is, is there a difference if the outcome is the same? If, it, if both get you to the same place, is there a meaningful distinction between the two? Uh, are they actually contradictory? And so, like, does figuring that out help you in any way? Or you just go forward with the, your vibes and what helps? So in this film, is like, talking about, like, there was literally a point where it said, if you believe me or if you don't believe me, what's the difference there like does it actually matter if i'm telling the truth or not if you believe me and if you don't believe me does it matter if i'm telling the truth or not like there's like this tension between like authenticity of like what's the actual reality when he points out that the outcome is the same either way depending on what their reactions are and i was just like ooh and immediately like wanted to put this film in conversation with f for fake where it you know, talks about art forgery and mm-hmm. if the artist's forgery of Picasso is the exact same as is as good as Picasso's and has like tricked people and has been in like art galleries and stuff, then what's the difference if the outcome is the same of looking at a beautiful painting? Right. And and so just like through this film of it like interrogating this like, okay, let's go logic based whatever like let's get to the root of this thing let's get to the the atomicity of what makes this truth and what isn't but then also him acknowledging whether or not i'm telling the truth doesn't matter it's based on what you believe otherwise like it's going to get you to the same place either way so like very basic like buddhist epistemologies at least from an indo-tibetan 
perspective because I know jack shit about like Chan and Zen uh, and, and Pure Land in any meaningful way. But and so then when he goes and be like, oh yeah, and then I'm Jesus because I learned Buddhism. I'm like Christianity's not that similar to Buddhism, <laughs> actually, if you look at it. Um, so I was like, eh, okay, movie. Just because they their tenants are like, don't be a dick, doesn't mean <laughs> that they're similar. I mean, yeah. there are a lot of things where yeah. the tenant is don't be a dick. So like it's kind most of a religions, very broad... it's don't be a dick, right? <laughs> it's just defining what the dick is. Is yeah, and how you don't be a dick. But yeah, like, I, I don't know. I, I found this movie's like way of grappling with trying to figure things out. And then if they do figure it out, what's the actual outcome of that figuring it out? I found that really interesting. And, when, and then when it was like B- Jesus Buddhism time, I was like, okay. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I I appreciated the the anthropologist character Dan because he's like the whole time he's like yeah let's Candy just, Man yeah it's him. yeah <laughs> but you know the whole time he's like yeah let's just let's just see where it goes you know like whether yeah he kind of does the same thing where it's like whether or not he's lying or not why does it matter let's just see how this conversation goes and what threat it is but then at the end of the film he has. I wouldn't say disproportionate, but he has like a very emotional reaction when, you know, John claims that it's it was all a trick. He's Fox Mulder. He wants to believe. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's kind of like, I, I don't know. I don't know how this connects to what you were saying, Jay, but that's just how it, that character kind of intrigued me in the sense that he was doing that sort of philosophical thing and then in the end it turned out to be very emotional for him instead so he develops attachment to it yeah he he doesn't he doesn't he's not actually following a logical path Mm -hmm. in what he's trying to he starts out that way i think because it's not it's not it's just non-consequentialism right he doesn't like he he's allowing ethical assumptions to be what they are and instead seeking to use the use what he's been given to get at the heart of intent of the matter, which I think is a really useful way of thinking. And it's a useful way of working against sort of your instincts to cohere and normalize that which you, and here's, and it, it reminds me of a couple of things. It reminds me of a friend of mine who, when I worked for, I used to work for a homeless nonprofit in Florida where I have, so I have a lot of friends who live in tents and who are colorful. Let's just, let's just call them colorful. They have varying, you know, diagnoses and mental health problems or whatever. A lot of them are very, very kind, very gentle people who have a, have a different sense of interpretation of the world. Uh, a friend of mine, his name is Brady, who he is, uh, he still, he still lives in that area. He's from that area, actually. He went to church. I met him through, I I got him into the shelter that we were in, that I was working with after having met him because he went to church with my parents and Brady taught, he, it's, it's less, the content of what he says is difficult to, to piece out because he has a tendency to string sentences together, which is relatable. Uh, But he talks in paragraphs. And so you have to sort of like, you really have to kind of like dig out and interpret like it really is sort of like a philosophical exercise of digging out rot. Not to say that like the excess in his speech is negative, but that the it's sort of core meanings 
are more bound to correlations, right? He's not actually talking about like when he when he's talking about there's a private airport close to where he has his tent and the planes pass over and over again and whatever. He talks about conspiratorial thinking stuff like sonic booms and that kind of a thing. He uses language like that to describe and represent his legitimate experiences. There's a there's an element of like the intertwining between imminence and transcendence in the way that he talks and the way that he thinks in his speech that has all that always makes me think of great interlocutors throughout history. He doesn't do it by actually being direct and sort of having you question the way he the way that you question how you see the world is embodied in Brady's experiences. Not necessarily what he says, how he says it in any one particular way, but all of it all at once. All of that particularity and those contingencies actually act as critique of the dominant discourses that would say, Brady was diagnosed with bipolar when he was young and he's not medicated. This is why he is the way that he is. He lost his family. He had a break when his father, when he lost his father died and like that. And that's all, you know, you know, God bless the man. I hate to, you know, air all of his laundry out here, but he doesn't listen to podcasts. It's, uh, but like, and all of this, like the sort of narrative and that's given to my friend here explains some of the ways that he got to where that he is, but it does not fully encapsulate the language of his experiences, nor does it account for his it, and what it actually does it has a tendency to sort of press against his agency and the expression of his agency he's someone who needs to be helped but can't be helped is something that i've heard people who are literally related to him say they, they they've made very little attempt to like let's see this for what it is and let's try and like he needs to go fishing take him fishing let's just try and go fishing and talk for an hour and do our best to sort of like remove the particular expectation of you know social discipline and individual control and try and instead find you know it's not not a not a universal sense of being but a universal disruption in the particular implotment of our sense of being the, the, let, let's go find something more and try and move beyond honestly not it's 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 really basic but who like what is the figure of diogenes if not this in both inter, both active interlocutor in the minds and texts from antiquity, and also this weirdo who lived in the pot and talked to dogs, and you know did other colorful, less appropriate things in public, and all you know that sort of a thing. Diogenes <laughs> was it <laughs> exactly exactly? Diogenes, like when you attempt to sort of like bring the experience of an historic interlocutor in his way of living uh, the way the way you live your life and being incredibly important it like these tropes and modes and plotments and arguments and ideologies or whatever do little to actually capture the 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 possibility of those experiences and rather than uh, seek to reduce them in some measurable sense of what that could be and that's usually the driver of history, right? Are these like, what's the measurable metaphysical quantity of this topic? How can I reduce that and place it within its particular discursiveness or, or any, you know, and all that's good. All that's good. That's just, that's just historiography. That's just historical research. Like I, even I do that, but what you, we also have to do in like sort of our field in historians need to like lit, like you have to live and die against the grain. You can't just read it. 
you have to bring yourself back to life in it and not just an implied sense, but in an actual sense. And that's probably crazy, but you know. Yeah. Like in the, like with what you're saying and in the film and with the epistemologies that we're talking about and everything, like, you know, the, the whole movie is an interrogation and he seems to just be slipping through every question. Like it's very slippery. There's nothing they can hold on to because they all have an expectation of what they want the answer to be or what they don't want it to be. Like there is a specific expectation there. They're not just existing and asking for the sake of asking and seeing what the answer is. They're not meeting it where it's at. They have a specific shape in mind already. Like it's already this predefined history in their head that then this isn't meeting. And in in Buddhist philosophy, so you start out and it's very like Shipathesius like atom atomic theory and then you start moving into discourses of emptiness and emptiness often gets a bad rep of being like nihilism right this is where you get no self this is where you get all this stuff and people think like oh no self that's nihilism what emptiness is is it's approaching things without attachment or expectation and realizing that like what's there isn't like it's not this shape idea that you had of it. There's no core essential thing there. The The language my llama used for it one time was it's a womb of potentiality. Mm-hmm. It is not a negative space. It is a space that is open to be anything. And so when you approach things where they're at and don't have a fixed thing that you want it to be in mind when you are approaching history or approaching reality or approaching anything, then it just like opens up this beautiful space that can be what it wants to be. Right. Yeah. I was probably butchering that too. I'm not, I'm not uh, like, I myself am not a a fancy history boy or philosophy boy or, or anything. I just took a class one time. (laughs) Well, it's, so like like you're saying Jay and like thinking about like the characters cuz that's always what I go to in like films and stuff the, the the person in the room who really did that was the student yes she like she fucking got it <laughs> she she got it she had fun with it she let it go as soon as it was, it was like playful she was, yeah. yeah and she didn't she was pretty much the only one who didn't have an emotional reaction when it was revealed as a hoax she was just like, oh, okay, that's a thing. I'm still curious about it. And then the asshole archaeologist is like, come on. But I think that those sort of that sort of juxtaposition between those two characters was really interesting. Because the archaeologist right off the bat is an asshole. Like he He's walks like, we gotta in. get you committed, my dude. <laughs> yeah, we gotta get you committed. He walks yeah, he in off them. of a motorcycle with a younger student, hands like his parting gift is a copy of his own book. You know, like mm-hmm. it's yeah. he, they they really took that trope and we're like, we're gonna do everything with it. We're gonna make sure it's clear. Someone had a dick professor. Somebody had a dick professor. <laughs> the hilarious thing is that character really reminded me about my uh, reminded me of my father, which I won't go into, but um <laughs> But then the fact that the person who in throughout all of it is actually embodying the true like core of like, this is a 
this is an exploratory thing is just, is the student. It's not any of the, you know, credentialed professors or anything. It's, it's the student who goes, Oh yeah, I was in your undergrad, this class. I was in your undergrad, this class. Like she has beginner's mind. I'm clearly along for the ride because I literally rode up on the back of a motorcycle. So I really appreciated that. that about (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I mean, what they're, what they're constantly trying to do is force him to, prove the historical facts of the case and then they immediately go actually that's not possible because there's no there's no authorities on prehistory there's no authorities on the childhood of jesus there's and even if you did like it would require multiple attestation which he's the only person who is fourteen thousand years old as far as he knows um maybe one other person he met one time but that person could have been lying to him he doesn't know as far as he knows he's probably alone yes so there's no multiple attestation, but the whole, the really Christian parts of this movie are really interesting because they're doing a lot of like historical Jesus stuff. And so the way the Jesus seminar works is they try and find out like, what are the most likely historical Jesus phrases? And then they kind of rank them. And this is the same way that Hadith are ranked uh, sayings of the prophet Muhammad, mm-hmm. which are how many independent attestations are there? And that's sort of our standard for proof. But that never works with oral histories. That doesn't work with any other type of non-written thing because it needs to be written four times. So that's why New Testament scholars, particularly because most New Testament scholars are just Christians, Mm -hmm. they create more hypothetical documents to then point to and say, look, we have more attestations of this because there's not only Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's also Q. There's also M. There's also L. They make like dozens of these things and then point to them as if they're real. So Bart Ehrman does this and it's very annoying. Whereas, like, the easiest answer is they copied from each other because, yeah, yeah it's, it's so. the simplest answer. And also just, like, that's our, our way of knowing knowing, it, knowing it, knowledge, that, that's a bad word, it's 9.30 p.m., is, like, based on written attestation and, like, why is that a better mode of knowledge transmission and verification? It's arbitrary. Other- yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, the thing, the thing that I just Cat. thought about... <laughs> Oh my God. He's really hanging on there. Um, Scar, save me. (laughs) (laughs) Aw. Long live the king. We got Arthur right here. King Arthur. (laughs) But how, like, they were asking, you know, they're interrogating him. They're asking him all these historical questions. And then when he answers them, the especially the archaeologist was like, well, that's just straight out of a textbook. And it's like, well, I mean, he's a historian. For one, he's a historian. You're an archaeologist. Like, if he's telling the truth, then wouldn't you want it to be straight out of a textbook? Because wouldn't that mean that you're right? You know, like, that sort of contradiction, like, it's... Oh, you just looked that up. Oh, you just looked that up. Like, how the fuck else am I supposed to do it then? (laughs) Like, if if history is as you've claimed and as your, you know, specialty or field or whatever says it is... By your own logic... Yeah, by your own logic, that should be his answer. So why are you using it to cast doubt on his story? Like you're you're showing your ass there, basically. In, in monastic debate, they would go finished, 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 and like <laughs> do like a fun little snap at him, and that's how you know you just got pwned. <laughs> it's your like you you're bring that back. the you're drawing the, I know right you're drawing particular conclusions that are it's, it's what's really I think neat about the dialogue the dialogic style. 
this really this plural dialogic style, which is very like. I mean, you know, someone got their BA, <laughs> like, like someone read, play, someone had to read a bunch of Plato, like p- possibly, or or someone's like me who didn't get their BA in philosophy, but who came to philosophy through an inter- interdisciplinary means. But like, I think, I, I think as like people who have, you know, been involved in near inside around next to academia, we can all understand how like how, like the 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 crisis of confidence that comes when someone realizes that they weren't complete I, they that they weren't completely totally wedded to the pre- the epistemological premises of their study of their field it some scholars have nervous breakdowns because they realize that they didn't believe themselves this whole time and that this whole time that they're sort of like like name of the fathering, their mode of discipline, their field, their 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 wedding, their wedding to a particular subject. It's the episode of Community where um, uh, Abed takes the class on who's the boss, and Abed he takes a class on an, a scholar who is specializes in the study of the show Who's the Boss. And the, he takes the class under the premise and says, in the, and the professor says in the beginning of the class, this is a question with no answer. You can't actually say who is the boss. But Abed says, Angela. And the professor says, oh, you know, I, I'm not, he's, I, it's, I can't remember the exact quote, but at one point he says, Mr. Abed, I'm not a fan. I'm not some, you know, outside observer. I'm an academic. And this question has no answer. I literally wrote the book on it. And then at the end of the episode, he proves it to him uh, somehow. You don't really see how, right? But, uh, and it's the usual sort of like, Community is my favorite show, but, you know, I I see where Dan Harmon and it does his kind of like, you know, through the character of Abed, who I think is a very interesting character on that show, uses him as this kind of like, there's a there's a standard bearer of knowledge in the disruption of particular knowledge. In this case, he did it sort of the opposite of the film that we watched. We watched a film that disrupts the uh, uh, modes of thinking by calling into question by using the particular scholarship the the mode uh, a communicative mode as well as an epistemological mode to confirm findings to confirm a way of thinking and thus introduce doubt into that way of thinking because he is an impossible he's a he's the rendered object of history and thus an impossibility there is no rendered coherent object of history but rather as a very lucky man as they say in there he is the result of a series of improbable possibilities what if a man could live for 14,000 years and not die and so and what what this episode of community does is uses the accepted doubt of an unanswerable question, an academic gets an answer to that question that seems reasonable to him and thus makes his whole field not really matter anymore. Because, well, shit, maybe there is an answer to this question. I was banking on teaching this class until I retire. Like, maybe there's an answer to it. And so it has this like, like, we are supposed to be approaching this entire episode as a, th- a, a, th- a creative, playful, thoughtful problem, which is why the realm of science fiction, which is where all of this really was born, created as a script for Star Trek or whatever, really, I think that's the textural quality of the film that's so special, is that it treats these thought problems as things worthy of 120 minutes 
90 minutes or whatever of like, you know, like not to be pretentious, but like my dinner with Andre is a whole, that's oh God community reference that too. I can't get away from that show that, that it's, it's a whole entire conversation that by its own premises, accepts that the mundane can be mighty because nothing is everything. And that if there's anything that I've learned about history is that it overwhelms me in an, in an addictive, almost abusive way. But like, I, like I'm, I'm addicted to the premise of knowledge in history, that history doesn't exactly cohere into a particular, but it, it is only represented in part objects. But subjectivity is only represented in part objects. And so we're flinging all this crap at each other, trying to figure out who we are. And if that premise can actually be extended to history as rendered in some kind of coherent object, well, then that's that's the like, it's the premise of a whole new way of living. We start to disrupt our mode of being as well. And it it breathes life into metaphysics and uses history to do so in Historians, I love y'all, but we're, we are, we are, we can be very boring. We can still be really good lecturers, but still we're rehashing the same methods of writing. We communicate our ideas the same way that we have for so unbelievably long. When, why aren't we writing movies like this? Why is this not being, why are, why are like us as an academic communities, why are we not create the people who are creating things like this? We don't just have to comment on it. I think we could make it too. So there's a big long, I always like, I, ha- I make, I make everyone sign a contract that says I get one big long accidental rant per appearance on every show. And I'm going to cash in my card on that one. <laughs> the Christianity part of this, as you mentioned, was a little cringe. It was a little of its time. This is also, it, it came out also around the same time where I was leaving fundamentalism. So it was, uh, when did this come you out? Know, uh, 2007. 2007. Same. So <laughs> my freshman year of college, I was, yeah. uh, going into high school. I'm I baby. forget how young you are sometimes. I'm, I'm 29. Yeah. You said something about like this show came out when I was like eight and I was like, what are you talking about? I don't remember what we were talking about, but you said you like you were eight when it came out. I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. No, I'm baby. <laughs> I, I'm Is on T though. So it's like, I'm on T. So it's hard to know how old I am because going on like doing HRT, like turns you into like an ageless, like angel yep, and no one exactly. can tell how old you are forever. <laughs> Existing yeah. beyond history. Our desire, our, our, our captured desire, we, 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 ca- we cannot, we want to, but we can't be, you know. Ah. You're almost an unaging Cro-Magnon man. Oh, <laughs> I'm that one Neil Gaiman short story where they, they find out how to cure cancer, but it's like a pill um, and it changes your gender. And so then people start using it as like a party drug and all this stuff. And then people just do it all the time. And this person like has like a fit on a beach and collapses and is like staring at everyone's like they're angels and like freaks out. And I'm like, hell yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That's really strange. Yeah, it's one of the games like cool weird short stories. Yeah, like the one. Yeah, that's, like, I they, mean, that's something I would expect yeah. from like Clive Barker. No, it's that's pretty like good. A very Clive Barker sounding story. Yeah, no, his like early shit before he married Amanda Palmer is actually pretty good. <laughs> there, I can't remember if this is before they bring up that he's Jesus, but Dan makes a point because they're like, why? Why would he lie about this? And he uses the CS. He references the CS Lewis apologetic. Which he says, our, mm. our friend is either a caveman, a liar, or a nut. I thought that was a really interesting approach to epistemology because one, Lewis's trilemma is like a weird. It's like, well, if Jesus 
was going around saying he was God, but actually wasn't, that would make him a bad person. It's like, well, or, you know, he didn't say that. (laughs) And also people can believe something and it still be untrue. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of the the apologetic they're playing with a little bit, but he uses that to say like, look, we just have to listen to him. We're, we're just grading his homework. I think is something he says at that point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I liked that line. That was a good line. A lot. Yeah. Where he was just like, kind of like, Along for the thought experiment. Um, a story like, that goes yeah. around the room is he used that to describe it negatively. Yeah. But I'm like, that's, that's just, that's, that's everything, baby. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right, like, is yeah. it not right? Is not yeah. like, it's, you have, it's, it's, it's whether or not we can capture some sense of, I'm not like an old school, I'm not like an old school EP Thompson humanist necessarily. I have complicated views around that stuff, but at the same time, I do just come from a, I come from a background that's like the, the, like you, you, sometimes you are in a room and some guy's like, I'm 14,000 years old. And then everyone in some sense, in their own way, from a different place for different reasons, decides, I want to talk about this. Let's talk about this. Let's not, rather than hand weight, like, because he started, he kind of slips into start, he, he kind of brings it up as a premise. People kind of laugh it off. He, then he starts responding to like, they start asking inquiry, like almost like in a, like it's a game, like an improv game or something like that, that, uh, like just to sort of like spur on like store, like storytelling. So, okay. So you're 14,000 years old. Where, where were you born? Do you remember your father? Do you like all? And then when he's responding in first person, it takes on at some point, everyone's like, are we doing this? (laughs) And I'm like, that is underrated that that idea. their performances of that sort of journey incredible i was like good. yep i know exactly like you are conveying the correct emotion <laughs> yeah what you're going i know what your character's going through right exactly now. who hasn't had that friend who's like said some shit and you're like oh okay let's yeah. let's yeah let's talk about it let's do it <laughs> who hasn't had that friend or been that friend right i'm, I'm not the most recent but the episode of a gab before that I put this out in the promo, but I talked about, I'm realizing, I talked about this guy I knew in college who, I don't remember his name, but it's a guy that ever he's always there and everyone kind of knows him, but I didn't really, like, he's one guy's close friend. He's like one guy's roommate or whatever. I remember he, I remember two things about him. He was really into the band Silverchair and also that he had the funniest bit of all time that I've ever heard in my entire life. I don't know why still I find this so funny, but I do. But he used to, in all earnest, tell everyone that he knew that Jonathan Taylor Thomas died in 9-11. <laughs> in, all, in all earnest, which is just so like, good. it's so random. It's the, And I'm like, that's so funny. And whenever you hear about the bit, if you like the bit, you have to then do it at some point you're sitting there at a party and you're there with another friend of yours who knows who's in on the bit and you look at each other and you just like you know we're 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 about to we're about to spread misinformation at this party and get at least one person to con- convince that this is true this is before because it's before wikipedia and all that stuff so you could like like have this it's it's and, you know, I think about spontaneity in human action and in the formation of historical subjectivity a lot. And I think this goofy ass thing, just like telling people that the kid from Home Improvement died in a a, a big, big bad terrorist event, like the most pro- the most formative formative event in the Western world in the past twenty years, that the the voice of Simba from The Lion King <laughs> was there. 
people are like, no, and it's like, when was the last time you've seen him in anything? And like, <laughs> well, I don't know, but that doesn't mean he died in nine 11. It's like, doesn't mean that he didn't. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden you have this dumb premise that's, Completely false, completely untrue. It's like the Avril Lavigne like died, and now she's got like of someone pretending to be her. Oh, like, they do like a, like Paul is dead, like Paul McCartney. Yeah, like all that. that kind of stuff. I didn't know there was an Avril version of that. Yeah, That's I know great. that yep. she's dead, and that there's an impersonator for like years uh, and years and years. Yeah, I just knew the Andrew WK one. What? I saw him. In oh, Salt me Lake too. City. Yeah, I saw it was, him. It's fucking blast. A long time ago. <laughs> Yeah, it's something like he looks different because he's because he's been performing for like twenty years, and that's like the basis of the of the conspiracy is that <laughs> oh, he looks old. He was created by a record label, basically, and so like different people have been him. Yeah, like framing this film in our in our in our current moment, as they say, of like misinformation and disinformation. Like, is this just like when does something stop being a fun thought? experiment and when you know when does something go be you know stop from being like okay let's sit here let's let's talk about it let's let's meet this and move into what we call misinformation and disinformation like is there a line there is it intention like huh. so there is a sequel to this movie uh oh which is not as good <laughs> does this answer my question <laughs> but basically what happens is art the asshole anthropologist writes a book about this event and it ruins his life. He's like oh. laughed out of the Academy and he becomes like a recluse and he like hates John after this for like basically forcing him to ruin his own life, I guess. Men do crazy shit. Yeah. That's the plot of the second m- movie is like, he lives alone with his pet pig and like so plays chess pig. on the internet is it, all day. Is this the prequel to pig? It's pig. Yeah. A pig's the best movie ever pig. made. <laughs> I... It's, it's really weird. Cause it's basically like, if you've ever seen those weird low budget Christian movies like God's Not Dead, it's basically yes, an atheist I love God's version. Not dead. <laughs> it's an atheist version of God's Not Dead. That's what the yes. sequel of this movie is. It's awful. It's I need so to see bad. It, it is so funny. <laughs> That's such a bummer. I'm definitely gonna watch that. And it's also such a bummer because this it sort of doesn't allow the film to I just no no I don't I don't know I, it's it's fine it's fine it's actually probably better that the sequel exists because it it like if this film is trying to demystify ways of thinking or introduce new ways of thinking then my de- my desire to res- to have it be this sort of the absolute capital H rendered object of history is not is a it's a fantasy it's not like and to the knowledge question I think. Like I think I think I mean I think I think we already you know sort of passed over it in that the sort of the dominant discourses of first the academy then the the medical gaze steps in it, it has this like structure structure is willing to intervene in the discursive exchange so on the one hand you have you have something that feels very wild and that because it is something something that should not exist and should not should not exist in the form that it is which is an an existing prehistoric man a a transcendent an object of transcending history living breathing and communicating with you but on the other hand you see the the intervention the you know the the intervention the threats of intervention i don't know where i was going with that the I kind of want to talk about the ending a little bit because this whole movie spends all this time playing with 
false information. And what Will does at one point is he threatens everyone with a gun. And first, the first time he does it, it's a pipe in his pocket. Psychologist. Yeah. 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 So the first time it's, it's in his pocket, but it's actually his pipe. Then the second time he pulls out an actual gun. And then once John said like, because his wife has just died, he's like unstable. And so John runs after him and says, you've got to give me the gun. I can't trust you to keep it. And then it goes straight to the camera to show you it's not loaded. Mm-hmm. So like that was there a good was shot, by the way, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a really good shot. And in doing that, it sort of like shows that, you know, people can be lying. It's kind of up in the air, which is why the ending is so weird because at the end we find out that Will is actually John's son. Uh, who he obviously had to abandon the family after 10 years, he had to move on, but he overhears him talking about his old pun names. So like John Paley, John Thomas Partee, and he's like, that's his father's name. And of course that this is after everyone else has left. So the only person who really knows that it's true is Will and um, the girlfriend character, whose name I always forget. Cause she barely talks in the movie. Sandy. Sandy. Yeah. Yeah, I Darth Vader ending. I did not dig it. Like, I feel like wouldn't it built- he have realized? Like, wouldn't John have realized that was his fucking? Mm-hmm. Like, by I- then, did they did they learn the names? Yeah, he he when he's like having the conversation with Will, he repeats Will's last name back to him, and is like, "She remarried." Meaning Will's mother. Oh, okay. So he doesn't have the same last name, but like. For for one, it felt like it was like the last five minutes of a film. It just like comes out of nowhere. It comes out of nowhere, and at first, I didn't actually understand what was going on. I had to rewatch it to be like, wait, I didn't no, this is this is really what's happening. But I hate how the whole film sets up this whole philosophical: do you know or do you not know? And then fucking rips it right out from underneath you at the end in like the cheesiest way possible, right? I. I, I would wanted have to say, the, like Schrodinger's like caveman Jesus. That's yeah, what I wanted. no, I wanted yeah. I wanted him and his girlfriend who clearly believed him from the beginning of the film for whatever that speaks about her character or how the writer views women. You know, right off into the sunset and have her. You know, she's along for the ride, but she never. We never know whether or not she's also right in having taken this this bet. Right, that was the ending I wanted, and I I got a dead psychiatrist. And a confirmation I did not want. It's a very strange ending. It, I feel like they must have felt they had to end it like that. They must have felt like, like structurally. They must have felt compelled like they have to end it this way for whatever production reason. They had to have some because sort it, of closure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Or, you know, Jerome Bixby was dying when he wrote this. So, I mean, he could have just like forgot to like clean up the ending and it just never got reworked into a way that kind of stuck with the the themes of the film we will never know Uh uh-huh we'll never know getting meta about it (laughs) yeah the the second movie is kind of still has this obsession so i think i can see where it's where that intention comes from but uh in the second movie he's like starting to age which is really interesting so like is he actually crazy the whole time and he doesn't heal the way he used to so it's like what if he was actually wrong like the vampires in the hunger but of course we had a confirmation at the end of this movie that he actually is at least a couple hundred years old so eh, or very quick liar 
The other bone I have to pick with this is is when Dan says that clocks refer like reference other clocks, and that's mm-hmm. just blatantly not true. There's an atomic clock that measures things by like physics, like it, it, it has a physical basis that's not another clock. So, how do we define a clock? Well, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, but it, it, you have to measure the decay of the atom with a, with another clock. And so you're just using it the same way that you're using a gear to make a clock. So it's, I mean, you probably could t- come up with like a quantum account of time. I think there is something like that. Like time has to move at certain paces, I think. Uh, it's been a while since I've read any physics about this, but. I, I just, I just didn't like how definitive it was. It was like, no, we can talk. Let's talk about that. Let's go on a tangent within the movie and talk about how we, you know, the whole thing is about time and how we like exactly. perceive and measure it. But like, it seemed like such a weird definitive statement for a movie of its topic. I don't know. I think it made sense. He was, he was saying that there's not this authority. There's not, a, there's not a, a, you can't ask God about these things, right? You, there's no it's external empty. validation. There's no central, like platonic, like center or origin point of time it's everything is talking around time whoa i think if you were to rework some of the script you should really go in on like indigenous knowledge systems god please because um, they they throw it yeah. they throw a line right before he says clocks measure themselves he says the hope you see time is a landscape that's before behind us and we move through it it's like a psychogeography kind of thing yeah yeah and john is a man who might live outside of time because he doesn't experience time in anywhere near the same way that we do although his mental experience is just what he says i remember the high points and the low points my memories are selective just like yours mm-hmm. but what he says is living that long doesn't make me a genius i've just had time to study it's like groundhog day <laughs> yeah it's revealed that he has uh he has all their degrees except psychiatry something just occurred to me and this is off topic of that but it is the one that is the one who asks him do you remember your father the psychiatrist because he shoots back with, do you remember yours? I think so. Uh, I think it yeah. is, yeah. Uh-huh. I, just, I, just con- I just connected that foreshadowing. Sorry, I'm just tiny, uh-huh. tiny little moan, blown mind moment. They also- Planting a payoff, baby. The, Chek- the Chekhov's gun. Yeah, he brings in, he, he says usually is the mother, don't you usually ask about the mother that's, first? That's right. Um, no, it's interesting. It's interesting how the film is trying to like, I, I haven't thought about like how how- What's the sort of zero, zeroing in on what it means to like be it, be a person in the film? And it has this almost Heideggerian kind of sense of that, like our sense of authenticity emerges from the, I don't want to say production even, sort of the, like our, our, our sort of like our capturing of the ens- essence of design. So try, wh- wh- how, whatever that means for him, that's, you know, you know, 600 pages about hammers and anxiety, but like what, 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 what in a lot of ways, I think uh, alternative sort of knowledge systems help define here as, as we've alluded to is that like if someone didn't experience time in the same way that others did, should they be able to transcend time in some way? Would they have the means to impart that implotment is, is, is in the way we communicate with one another in language that the only way that you get beyond that is by experiencing time differently. He still has to reduce that to the particular sort of the subjective experience, the conversation between sort of subjects 
their rendered objects and the way that they the 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 interplay of subjectivity. But if if you can transcend that subjectivity by passing through time differently than others, then well, if you're going to talk to subjects, regular old human subjects, you got to talk to us like we're babies. Because it's hard for us to understand what exactly it is you mean, and so we're going to have all these varying sort of like reactions to it. If they, if you, if you can convince a room full of people to engage with that genuinely, um, and in for most of them pretty earnestly, you can come up with some very interesting reactions. And so, yeah, if we want to reduce it to the subject, that's it's a good subject study, I guess. Yeah, and is it the psychiatrist or someone else who brings up the sort of like idea that like as you get older, your perception of time is like shorter? So like what was a year to you when you were like five versus what a year to you is when you're 50 because you've experienced more time, time feels shorter. Um, And so he brings up like what does a year feel like? How does time like a day or year feel to you now, like versus like, then I think is something uh, is brought up at one point. So even if he's moving through time the same way, just because of the amount of time, his perception of time is, is, is like different. Like if, if you've been on earth for a bajillion days, what does a day feel like when mm-hmm. you have so many behind you? They're just going to feel shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. Which uh, part of what intrigued me was the 10 year. I move every 10 years. And yeah. like, I can see that because like in an average human like lifespan, that's about the time that you would see, you know, you'd be able to compare two photographs about 10 years apart and tell that somebody has like really aged. But like in the scope of the time that he has lived, ten years have to, has to feel like, like right over, like like a weekend, you know, away or something like that. Like yeah. so, he's lived these ten year lives for probably a couple hundred years now, and that just like at that point, why would you even engage in relationships with other people? Which is something that sort of kind of got to explore with his with like Sandy, and I wish I had gone more into that. But yeah, um, but yeah, I think that was. An interesting choice to make. Yeah, he's the world's biggest serial monogamist. So, I mean, at that point, if you've had so many fake identities, is it even legal? Yeah. I, I mean, mean in Utah, always, probably. Probably, yeah. yeah. That's always <laughs> the really fun part is, like, he can't do this forever. Like, surveillance is so much yeah, uh, so much of an issue for him. Especially, like, in a post-9-11 world, right? This yeah, Jonathan everywhere. Taylor Thomas didn't have post, to deal with yeah, this. Yeah, post <laughs> Jonathan Taylor Thomas, excuse you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a part of my life that doesn't come up much. And so the fact that that's made, made a comeback has been good to me. That's, that, that was at Bible college that I, I met that person. I was a... And that person was Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> And that's Albert Einstein. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they. I guess a little more common uh, modern discourse. They do talk about going to Mars in the future, and he's like, "Oh, that'd be cool. I'd like to do that." It's like, "No, don't do that. You can't live in space, dude. You still breathe air." Yeah. (laughs) Like, don't go to Mars. It's a bad idea. Uh, I had a guy in the local DSA tell me that 
colonizing Mars is different from regular colonization because it's literally terra nullis. I'm like, you do remember that they brought people here, right? Like that can still happen with Mars. Like you would just enslave people and take them. And also not to get like eco-feminist about it, but also like what you do to the land also matters. Yeah. I mean like every single colony in the early 17th century that got created, like immediately turned into a slave colony. Like, no matter what they tried to do initially. Yeah, but now it, we just won't call it that. We'll call it something cool and fun, like... like uh, Prison. Yeah. <laughs> like, like you're, you're, you're getting your... You'd be like the Dogecoin Funhouse. Yeah, exactly. Like, watch, like, eat your... In your, you know, your your little musk dome, your the the ten foot by ten foot cell you live in when you it's like a, a bucky a bucky ball, but like yeah. slavery. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Y'all know what bucky yeah. balls are? Yeah, is that the thing they sell at Bucky's? No, it's um, Buckminster Fuller. He was really big into like geodesic domes and like living in them. He was in like Southern Illinois, so there's like a, a, quite a few down there. But yeah, they're called buckyballs. They're big geodesic oh. domes you can live in. They're the pretty baller. Okay. I think we've covered it. Go watch this movie, folks, and you know, buy it, but also like, yeah, pirate it too. I think you can pirate. I think if you if you go to like their website, they still have like a full download of it that you yeah. can just you can just watch this movie on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty good. It was like a fun, like what if like a, a new atheist who was like almost there like did a Sartre play? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. pretty good would yeah. watch again to see what i missed um because i'm sure there's some more there there that i just like didn't get on a initial viewing it's very juicy yeah i want to come back to it after watching a bunch of twilight zone i was really into the twilight zone for a long time i can tell <laughs> <laughs> yeah i turned out like this so yeah you know, i was like you said he like the the author like oh. the writer i was like i can tell <laughs> No, well, he no, wrote, that was that was me throwing some shade at you, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote an episode. He wrote uh, a short a short story that ended up in the Twilight Zone. Yeah, um, the cornfield one. Yeah, the they, one where they, the kid they, controls the the world. Is that the one that, that they used? They, they used that one in the Simpsons. I know he ended up in a Treehouse of Horror too. Mm-hmm. I can't remember which one. Nice. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I think an early one, yeah. But yeah, drums Bixby, go watch Star Trek. And Science go fiction is to, good. Yeah, go listen to Profane Show. Go listen to Agab. Go watch Kyle's videos. Go listen to the two-hour Boss Baby uh, Criterion Collection Edition. I'm pretty <laughs> sure I attained enlightenment while I was listening to it. I was like going was through Sarah, like suffering was happening to me, and that we was that was the pathway out of samsara i'm glad it, i'm glad it, we had a lot of fun we, i always have fun with those guys it's just like a it's just a party every time we get to hang out but that yeah it was like the discussion of rhizomes and then like goo and i was just like yeah this this is all of human knowledge that i need right here it's <laughs> a good show it's so good yeah well thank you for having me here as always i'm it's nice to be with friends come back whenever you want it's so yeah. good yeah of course yeah. Good night.